When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week we talk about Brexit. What's the maths? Will it ever work out? Then I talk to Jude Christian about her new play, Othello Macbeth. Plus, you ask us, should Vince Cable resign? Stephen, Parliament is back next week. And do you know what else that means is back? our juddering march towards a chaotic Brexit? Yes, yes it is. So can I check in on that? Because obviously the big story of the week in political terms is we've got a trade deal lined up with South Africa. Pretty excited about that. Big bonus coming for Liam Fox uh, come Christmas time. But uh, but how are the old, uh, how are the old votes looking? Because I see something about it being kicked back from the crunch period, the indefinitely delayed crunch period going now back to November. The votes are looking bad. Uh, votes are bad. Yeah, the Central problem is there aren't enough of them. For Theresa May to pass the Brexit. For indeed, yeah, any form of Brexit. I did, mainly for my own curiosity, I, I started doing a vague headcount of who are the Conservative MPs who will definitely vote against. Even checkers, let alone like, well, further concessions on checkers. Yeah, the thing, because although I think it's actually highly likely that a deal which will look vaguely like checkers, i.e. in the single market for goods, within some type of customs union, a large degree of regulatory alignment with some kind of opt-out for free movement, something like that will exist. But it will be several degrees more of rule-taking even than checkers, and it will be several degrees short of the full economic benefits of being in the single market and customs union proper. So the question you have to ask yourself are, one, will more than seven Conservative MPs vote against that? Yes. Then you go, well, what about the seven Labour leavers? Will they cancel them out? And I think one of the interesting things, and I think a lot of people, including people who cover politics, seem to have internalised, is deciding the Labour leavers vote against the Labour Party on close votes to be mean. So you're, when you wrote about this beforehand, you were talking about the kind of the set, like the seven circles of hell, but there's many circles of Labour leavers and some of them being willing to vote against on procedural stuff, but, you know, not on all votes, right? So there's a difference between the vote of a Kate Hoey and a who... Uh, Kate Hoey and of, a kind of... Um, call, can Caroline Flint, Flint on the, so the Caroline, fringes Caroline of that? Flint, I would, so I'd say there are, Caroline Flint, I'd put in the kind of maybe 14, 16 uh, sort of outer core of people who campaign to remain and now are, for various reasons, in a much more pro-leave uh, position. And so that kind of outer ring, your Caroline Flint's, your Gareth Snell's, Laura Smith will vote against anything that can be seen as stopping Brexit or um, 
or softening it, particularly on free movement, which they see as a crucial driver of the outvote. But those people have and will vote for anything procedural and anything on an aspect of Brexit that they do not think carries any particular purchase in the country, which is why the customs union vote was so close, because the various people in the Labour Party who feel that the referendum result, basically because no one can plausibly argue that there's a popular mandate on customs one way or the other, right? It just was not a vote moving issue. Then you have your kind of outer core of committed uh, seven leavers who, who've campaigned to leave the European Union and the Eurosceptics of, of long standing. And then you essentially have a group of whom uh, Dennis Skinner is the most prominent, Kelvin Hopkins, uh, not currently in the Labour Party because he's suspended following allegations of sexual harassment, is another in that group. That's probably the group which, if things had worked out differently, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell would be in, of people who are committed uh, Brexiteers, but when it looks like the government might fall, they will mostly vote to bring about a fall of the government. And then you have your kind of Labour League core who have voted with the government essentially on every Brexit vote other than the question of whether or not to have a meaningful vote. And actually Kate Hoey. Kate Hoey, Frank Field, Graham Stringer. So the, the obverse of that, though, is that you think there are seven Tories who will vote even if it will bring the government down? Yeah, I think there are who seven. Who will vote to reject checkers even if it will bring the government down? Yeah. I think, one, people understand that thanks to the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, you can have it both ways. You, you don't need to trigger an election if you don't want one. Two, they believe, whether rightly or wrongly, then the idea that you know, people like Michael Gove are sort of selling, which is, you know, you, you focus on getting out and then you can worry about, you know, finessing any terms you don't like later. They basically think that it's, you, you've got to get out, out as properly as you can in 2019 because you will never escape if you end up in a indefinite transition. So the thing I think was really going to change the conversation this autumn is things becoming kind of slightly more real and particularly those stories about what no deal means ramping up. I was this morning reading about the fact that the British and the French are at war over scallops uh, and apparently once Brexit happens it'll be brilliant because we'll be able to... The, the unspoken thing seemed to be like fire our cannons on French ships in order to defend our God-given and uh, right to, to fish scallops in our waters around Britain. So that's good. I'm quite in war with France. People said they want, you know, people voted Brexit out of nostalgia. What could be more nostalgic than war with France? It's true. It is the ultimate vintage British activity. I'm not convinced that stories about the reality of no deal will shift the the votes in Parliament because people have already made such a sort of thing of going, oh, no, that won't happen. Oh, no, that's project. Is this your John le Carre buying a painting thesis all over again? But yeah, it's also... And people it, bought the fake painting and they will now swear blind that it's a real painting forever. They will now forever. swear blind and it's a real painting forever. But also, crucially, they can't exit from Project Fear as a, a narrative because then how will they get any of the Brexits they want afterwards? The thing that lots of people in Westminster say is, oh, well, May will be fine because she will find some some Labour votes from somewhere. Well, if a deal is not levy enough for Jacob Rees-Mogg, it's not levy enough for Kate Hoey. And this is kind of what I mean about how I think there's a problem that a lot of commentators... I understand why Labour activists see the prism of Labour leavers voting to prevent a general election as them being mean. I don't think it's particularly, you know, I think it's a bit juvenile, but it's, it's understandable because they very badly want an election. That's the most important thing to them. And I can see how you can forget that if you are a committed Eurosceptic, the most important thing to you is leaving the EU. 
Can uh, I um, detour just to say, Graham Stringer, you wrote, who's one of these Eurosceptics we were talking about, you wrote a piece this morning about the possibility of him being deselected. There was another piece earlier in the week from, I'm going to say, Labour List, who had a long-term veteran organiser somewhere in the Wirral saying that things are getting really seriously hairy. And in your cover story last week, you talked about the fact that there are lots of MPs in Merseyside who are worried about deselection threats and not all of them Labour Leave. Frank Field is the obvious example, he's another Labour Leaver, but but more about the fact that there's a very well-organised momentum kind of movement there. There's lots of kind of people hangovers from militant tendency who are still knocking around in politics who kind of come back in. Tell me what's happening with the possibility, because how quickly could those deselections happen? If they, for example, a motion was passed at conference this autumn that made it easier to deselect, could you see Frank Field out and replaced by someone else in time for it to affect the votes? Or is the timescale of that just completely happening on a completely different plane? It happens on a completely different plane. So if something has, a rule change has to pass conference twice, mm-hmm. or it can be expedited if the NEC... Two different conferences. Two different conferences. Right. Or the NEC can do things to expedite it. But one way or the other, parliamentary selections are effectively an issue about the composition of the... 2022 parliament or you know whenever it happens not an issue you're not going to get someone deselected and have a replace like not a by-election you know i mean an internal selection to replace them before then it would be not allowed to restand next time yeah they won't be able to stand as as the labor candidate so it doesn't have any implications for the parliamentary arithmetic this time so there are sort of three separate deselection subplots going on in the labor party at the moment there is the one against labor leavers who in the minds of many labor M- labor MPs and activists bailed out Theresa May on a procedural issue i mean so someone who is no fan of jeremy corbyn who is themselves worried about the selection after the customs union vote was spitting blood and they essentially said to me well look the customs union vote isn't going to stop brexit yeah, everyone knows that Jeremy Corbyn is not going to backslide on on leaving. This is just some people who've decided to sabotage us having an election. Now, I don't think that their analysis is is correct. But that's quite a comforting that's analysis broad- if you're a more centrist MP, right? Is it like, oh, that one? That, yeah, they're not coming for me. I can back them going going for Kate Hoey or Frank Field or Graham Stringer, and it's not the same as them coming. Everyone will support them when they come from you know, support me when they come for me. Yeah, and then there's the kind of um, the sort of the second deselection subplot is uh, people like Chris Leslie who are under a lot of pressure locally, but who have uh, bluntly been loudly and vocally critical of of the Labour leader. And again, people will kind of say, yeah, but Chris has kind of... Do the crime, do the time. Yeah, that's what people will say. Then there's your third... I realise I lied, there are actually four deselections. Oh, Stephen! Then your third is uh, places that have a long-term history of left organising out with the Labour left, of people who have now come into the Labour Party, where, again, people think that is more indefensible they feel that some of those mps have have have, you know deserved to keep their seats but again labor mps will not be overly worried about it because of course most labor mps do not have seats which have large organized uh groupings out with the the left of the labor party then your fourth one which is kind of the game changer and the one to watch is basically what happens if people who have like you know who who no one on this podcast has heard of who voted with the Labour Party, who might, you know, privately in a, you know, in the conversation roll their eyes at the idea of Jeremy Corbyn. But, you know, there is nothing you can say, yeah, you know, who vote, may have voted in no hunter. There is nothing you can, you know, if you Google their Run name of the and mill, Corbyn, Corbyn. Like slightly Corbyn skeptic-y. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, but no more Corbyn skeptic than the average of the party, which is quite Corbyn skeptic and parliamentary party. Yeah. So 
Now, my my actual feeling is that most of those people will not will be fine because actually people forget there is no button in Momentum HQ or no button in the Labour leader's office to make people in a distant constituency party remove their MP. John um, Lansman should get that button. Yeah, it would be a useful button for him. But yeah, I mean, in, and you saw this in the 70s and 80s, right? Most Labour MPs were you know got through their selection processes fine. The point at which you would start to see proper panic in the Labour Party would be if people who were obviously in the fourth group started getting into some kind of trouble. In terms of the parliamentary arithmetic of Brexit, I think it actually makes it even harder for Theresa May because the signal that mm. Labour activists have sent is if you pre- if you prevent a general election, you are likely to face we will eat you. an organised deselection thing. Because in all three of those cases, crucially, actually, it's basically united the local parties. There is no caucus of people going defend the MP, uh, which there would be in most places. There's just a caucus of people going but this was a brilliant opportunity for us to bring the government down. What are you doing? Now, there are lots of Labour MPs who believe that our uh, continued membership of the Single Market and Customs Union are important enough to the ability to do any left-wing policy afterwards that they are willing to nuke their own careers in order to do it. However, they're not going to nuke their own careers for something which looks like checkers, right? You know, for the for the already quite significant economic harm of only being in the single market for goods. So... The fact that those MPs now know that there are almost certain career-ending consequences to breaking the whip means their price has gone up. I can't see how May can meet that price without tearing the Conservative Party in two, which she obviously doesn't want to do, which means I think we are heading for an incredibly chaotic and disruptive exit. That's my. That's the thing I find different about it, is, is actually trying to game plan it and do like the four-dimensional chess of it. You just run out of kind of going, I actually just genuinely don't know what, what happened. I mean, which occasionally you run into a correspondent who go, that sounds terribly exciting. And you think, yeah, exciting in the kind of like, you know, may you live in interesting times kind of curse type of, type of way, right? One thing I want to ask you quickly before we move on, uh, my cover story this week is about why British politics turn toxic. Why is everyone so effing angry all the time? And I'm interested, why do you think the mood feels so sour and miserable? when we talk about politics? Well, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, one, of course, we have now had a decade of near stagnant wage growth. Two, we've had a decade of public spending cuts. Three, social media means that people can express their anger more easily. So you have cause and proximity and I think that that would be my thesis, although I'm sure you have a more developed one in your. No, it's a it's a it is a good thesis. I think definitely the kind of decline of economic growth. You know, you don't get that kind of '90s boom feeling where it's about like, hey, we're going to have loads of stuff to give away. How what's the priorities about who we should give it away to? Instead, it's kind of like, particularly with the stories about refugee crisis and about uh, climate change. It's kind of like we're on the downslide now. Who's going to be able to hang on to kind of what they've already got, right? Which I think is is a change. And specifically in regard to America, the research is kind of about, it particularly says that you know the dominant group have now started thinking of themselves as having an identity. So you have white Americans without college degrees beginning to think of themselves as a kind of coherent political movement and one who are both feel endangered by the threat of a majority minority America and also about, which I think applies to Britain too, the second bit, which is about the America's decline as a world power. And I think there's definitely a lot of that in Brexit too, that kind of anxiety that comes with thinking, well, this country isn't really on the up again. And that's a nostalgia for empire, I guess, in the case of Britain, and a nostalgia for America as a kind of the undisputed single global superpower. But yeah, no, I think social media and 
not just social media in the sense of allowing angry people to talk to each other, but the kind of very architecture of the internet is a big part of it. And and Facebook, I think, has definitely got a huge role to play in the sense of the way that it doesn't do what broadcasters and journalists have always done, which is act as gatekeepers. And therefore, you know, what voices have been allowed to rise to the top and, you know, just done by the algorithm as if the algorithm is kind of the sort of great finger of God that comes out of the sky. And they tend to be, the, you know, the angriest and not always the best informed voices. You've got a whole economy of, you know, grifters basically making money by pumping false information into Facebook because there's no, you know, until now there's been very little sanction on that. But yeah, it's, yeah, well, you can tell it's quite a complicated thesis because I managed to write six pages about it, Stephen. Six pages. And everyone a winner. I should have basically written Twitter is a hell site and no one should ever go on it. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And now I'm joined by Jude Christian, director of Othello Macbeth, which is running from the 14th to the 19th of September at home, Manchester, and the 5th of October to the 3rd of November at the Lyric Hammersmith. Hello, Jude. Hello. I caught you just after rehearsals. We're here in the Lyric, not in our usual podcast bunker, in a very swanky podcast bunker. But tell me, uh, I mean, I guess the title kind of the jig is up. It's Othello <laughs> and it's Macbeth. But tell me why you wanted to m- m- kind of mash those two plays together. What was the kind of interest behind that? So I wish I had some magical story whereby this was like a vision that came to me. But actually what happened is the Lyric came to me and said, we're thinking about doing Othello and Macbeth as a double bill. Do you want to direct it? And my first response was no. And I did that awkward thing where I sort of talked myself out of a job quite angrily for a few days and then went, fine, actually, I do want to do it. But I think my initial response was, I've never directed Shakespeare's plays before. I always loved Shakespeare when I was studying it at school and at university. Did I think. you though? Did you really? Well, so I really loved the language. Yeah, I think I found it really exciting and I find it exciting now when playwrights embrace lyricism and embrace metaphor and poetic language. I find it a bit weird when playwrights do that and people go, oh, drawing on Shakespeare as if no one else has ever thought to write like that. But mm. there we go. And, you know, there's so many iconic moments that you've sort of read and you've either dreamed about being in them or you've dreamed about putting them on stage. So I think there's something that feels really tangible and visceral about Shakespeare because it's so fed to us all the time. But equally, you know, as I've gotten older and seen plays performed again and again and again and looked at the world and looked at the stories that we tell about the world, particularly with Othello, I was like, why why put on a play about a man who kills his wife and spends three hours banging on about why he's done it? Like, why put on a play which is... 70% one man lying and another man going, it's really painful for me that my wife's cheated on me when she hasn't cheated on him. And so I got quite angry and said that I wasn't interested in doing Othello. And then I went home and watched the entirety of the OJ Simpson Made in America documentary for nine hours, slightly hungover, and sat there going, oh my God, it's it's the story of Othello. And I hadn't quite realised that. And I thought that the documentary was fascinating because for the whole first half of it, it brilliantly dissected how America has a massive problem with race. Mm. And for the whole second half of it, it did not at all dissect how America has a problem with hugely successful sports stars 
assaulting or murdering women and getting tons of attention or getting spoken of as if that story is the tragedy of a hero falling from grace. I think that's one of the things I find really interesting about Othello, and there's a big production on at the Globe at the moment, is the tendency to see it as the race play clouds out the desire to see it as the sexual jealousy play. Exactly. Um, and actually, you really can't untwine those two from each other. You know, particularly Iago's jealousy is so clearly about the idea of Amelia um, having cheated on him. You know, that's and, and the kind of the white masculinity of him feeling that he's been usurped by this guy that he sees as being, you know, he's somehow lesser than him. So how, how why would a woman find him more attractive? And if you can't control your woman, then you know what can you control? And but I think that that some of that that interplay between the two, I think it tends to if, when people tend to bring the race element forwards, they tend to somehow lose the violence against women aspect of it and the jealousy aspect. I think it's something that comes up all the time in conversations around intersectionality. Is we we find ourselves only capable of thinking in terms of there being a victim or an oppressor at all times, and we we really struggle to hold in our heads. Because I think what we need is to go, if there's a victim, they are innocent, they are blameless, they have done nothing wrong, society has made this terrible thing happen to them, and the moment someone tries to suggest that they might have been in any way culpable or in any way have acted cruelly towards another person or have held privilege, we really reject the notion of it. And I think that comes up hugely in Othello, where you've also got Desdemona's huge amount of privilege in the way that she lives her life. And the sort of ambiguity around her relationship with Cassio and the way that she is talking to Othello about him, we're finding in rehearsals that we're having to constantly fight the urge to make Desdemona pure as the driven snow because only then is her death unjust. I think that's a really fascinating aspect. So yeah, there is a tendency to downplay any sense of flirtation with Cassio because then you get this idea that, well, then she deserves, you know, that that's, that's yeah. really the underlying that somehow, assumption, which is very Somehow as long as she's never looked or touched, like looked at or touched him, she doesn't deserve to die. Whereas, you know, if she'd shagged him, then kill her. Right, which is, which is uh, absolutely bizarre. within the world of the play. You can feel that if she had had sex with Cassio, then it would it would say, well, in that case, well, yeah, you know, exactly. Job, then we'd bang be like, oh, well, yeah, no one, no one really cares. So anyway, so all of this happened, and I got very angry reading Othello. And then I was also at the time I was working on a production with a company called Rashdash. We were making a show called The Darkest Corners, which took place in a car park in Leeds, and it was about women being assaulted when they walk alone at night all over the world. And what the stories of that are, and also stories of women who are fighting back specifically with violence. That was one of the things that we explored in the show, and uh, we had some quite interesting conversations about that energy that you have around that sort of thing, where you're going. A, the part of me that is angry and tired and sad, and also the part of me that grew up watching badass 80s action movies and secretly thinks that guns are cool, even though I know that they're abhorrent. We get that little jolt when we think about when we think about the notion that women might be able to right wrongs through violence, for example. And so I was thinking about Othello and Macbeth. I was thinking maybe this is an opportunity. For example, maybe what I'll do is just cut all the scenes that don't have men in them. So without changing the action of the story, what I'll do is throw a focus onto Desdemona. You know, let's tell the story of Reva Steenkamp, not Oscar Pistorius. Mm. Let's acknowledge that this woman's life and her tragedy are so lost in the, the, the disproportionate amount of time that men spend talking about things in this play. Can I say something that's probably... 
I mean, I've read the script of it, which is a really, I was going to say I have to give a spoiler alert, which seems a kind of very strange thing to do for Othello and Macbeth. But <laughs> but one of the things when I first, I think I did Othello for GCSE, actually. And one of the things that was awful studying it then was that awful scene where Desdemonia is preparing to get go to bed and she starts singing Tit Willow, which obviously never to be at the age of 15 was amazingly hilarious to us. <laughs> but that idea that she is kind of just this passive I think it's the passivity of her that I find really difficult to to deal with. And the same, you know, and that's why it's an interesting contrast, I guess, with Macbeth, where, you know, you have Lady Macbeth as the engine pushing, constantly pushing Macbeth onwards to, to whatever it is that he's, he's doing. There are two different, very different models of femininity. But yeah, my spoiler alert is that the way that you've structured it has Desdemona and Bianca and Amelia transmuting into the witches, right? Yeah. And then they get a lot of the the second half is then Macbeth. They get a lot of the famous lines. They do tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And uh, do they do Eric Damspot or is that still Lady uh, Macbeth? That's still Lady Macbeth, but they have blood will have blood. And so some you, of the big hits. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> All the ones you're waiting for. But I thought that was, so they kind of become a, almost like a chorus in the, as well as, as taking on the roles of the witches and, and then also playing some of the other parts like the porter as well. Mm. So there's just a lot more women on stage a lot more of the time. Yeah. But how how in rehearsals how is that how is that kind of how are the two plays bleeding into one another? So I think the idea that I went with was you end Othello with three women who have been in various ways horrifically shat on. I mean, two of them have been murdered by their husbands, which is pretty bad. And then you have Bianca, who is sort of ignored by everyone. And you start Macbeth with three women who are on a quest to fuck with everyone for no apparent reason. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if they had a reason? And I guess, like I say, the part of me that was interested in this sort of like badass female revenge, when wouldn't that be an interesting in? And to start with, I started making a cut of the plays where I just worked that idea through. So I thought, okay, Desdemona, Amelia and Bianca, they have a reason. So the um, the logic that I gave to the cast when we started rehearsing was they regenerate as witches or they reincarnate, whatever, respawn. Um <laughs> And so then they respawn the entire cast of Othello as the cast of Macbeth, but none of those people have any idea that they had a prior life. So I think t- the storyline that we're playing with is to those three witches, Cassio, this is massive spoilers, by the way, sorry, but it's fine. Um, so Cassio becomes Macbeth. And I think that they know that Cassio used to be Cassio. So they all have a relationship and an attitude to him and they have a purpose for him, I think. They have a mission that they want to play through the action of Macbeth. But Macbeth has no idea that he's a pawn in their hands. And that felt interesting because the witches play those characters They and actually they play them in a very similar way to how Iago plays Othello. They give truths or they give half-truths or they give manipulative pieces of information and they just sit back and see what those people do with them. But I think this is interesting having this conversation because it feels like an autumn in which there's a lot of Shakespeare that's playing with different types of gender around the place. Actually, and further back than that, so Michelle Terry at The Globe has been casting gender blind. She played... Hamlet, she had a male Ophelia in that. There was quite a bit of switching in um, Othello, the kind of the Doge of Venice was a woman, um, for example. We've got Measure for Measure coming at the Donmar where they're going to alternate the roles uh, just and, and kind of, oh, I know they swap halfway through the play. I mean, that's, I'm fully into that as being quite crazy, maybe even crazier than Othello Macbeth as a, as a concept. But even, you know, even quite traditional, quote unquote, productions that are doing more, it's really not unusual to see, like the Armida Hamlet had a female Guildenstern slash mm-hmm. Rosencrantz. I can't remember which one is which. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, Cut I guess fundamentally. <laughs> um, but, so there is an all of this to my mind springs from the fact that we you know Shakespeare is our national writer he's on the GCSE syllabus he's on the A level syllabus um really often everyone has to do it at school but 
there's what I think seven male speaking parts for every one female speaking part in Shakespeare. Um, and therefore everybody's wrestling with something that is fun. How, like, what are the limits? How far can you update Shakespeare? What, what are the hard limits on that? Well, I think you can do whatever you want. I think that there is a tension between, uh, I'm going to say, traditional theatre criticism and what living artists might want to do with Shakespeare, because I think that quite often it feels like for criticism in general, there's a there's a notion that it is about telling artists whether or not they've done a play right. I would say that 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 is an attempt to impose some limits, but I think that you should be able to do whatever. And I definitely went into Othello Macbeth going, do you know what? I know this stuff really well because I had to learn it in school. I've been told that this tells me about myself. I've been told that this is my national identity, even though me as a mixed race woman from a village outside Milton Keynes don't feel like I see myself represented in these plays. So if it does belong to us, then we can do what we want with it. Our job as artists is to create art. Theatre is a weird art form because it's quite often, if you're making text-based theatre, composed of taking a piece of work which was an existence of its own and then reinventing it for the modern day. And I think that with varying degrees of fidelity to text, you can you can pick how you want to how you want to treat text and how how far it's useful for you as an artist to sit within that framework. And then in this country, there are also rules around copyright to do yeah. with what you can do but I think that in an in a sort of in an ideal world you could and should be able to use as much or as little as you like of the original words or the original intent of a play because you're saying something personal in a new time and place for a new audience and with a new context I'm just I guess I'm just surprised that there aren't more updatings of Shakespeare and the plots I guess everyone's just scared that he's such a brilliant writer. His use of metaphor is so brilliant that be like, oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I guess a rare example of it being um, Mike Bartlett's Charles King Charles the Third, right, mm-hmm. which was in blank verse and was very Shakespearean in its themes. But it's quite a, it's quite ballsy or quite overish. I don't know which way we are until we say that to kind of say, yeah, I'm going to do a, a Shakespeare play. But you know, he was already updating existing plays yeah. and existing bits of history, and um, and there is now a kind of attachment to this sort of like sealing him in aspic as our national writer that sort of. Says, you know how could I possibly kind of as you say there is a kind of like you have to do Shakespeare right which is nothing to do with how Shakespeare you know because when no one's doing it with boys and in original pronunciation yeah 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 um, you know and and all of that even the the globe which is quote-unquote committed to our original practice has still got lots of lots of updating in it but I think I think there's such an academic weight behind Shakespeare as well as a critical and a theatrical weight behind it that I think it gives all of us the fear Mm. because I think you really see it with actors who come to engage with Shakespeare, what they, how they feel they need to sort of position themselves in terms of their knowledge. And everyone is scared into having a deference towards it. And I think it's because we are told constantly, Shakespeare sort of fated as some beyond human entity, which is, you know, kind of possibly because he just stole the brains of loads of other people and stuck their plays together and was very, very good at getting his name on it before anyone else. But we're so told that he's sort of this being beyond the comprehension of a normal mortal human that I think quite often we're either scared of getting it wrong or other people are scared of us getting it wrong. And because theatre is such a collaborative art form, you can't as an individual go, okay, death or glory, like here's my interpretation of it and I'm just going to put it out there because you need an entire company of actors, an entire design team, an entire theatre to get behind you before you even get your chance to put that in front of an audience. And I think 
I again I have a I have a weird relationship with it because having never directed it there's a part of me that's like got the fear and I'm like it's my first Shakespeare I don't want to show off by like sticking two plays together but also <laughs> oh, I think directors I who only direct one Shakespeare play exactly, it's well, like come on go that. big or go home but I I think for me there was a bit of a sense of well I can't imagine needing to prove that I can do Shakespeare properly because I don't think that I want to be doing Shakespeare properly for my future career. So aside from the stakes of generally people potentially turning up and going, Jude's just rubbish at directing per se, I don't have the anxiety anxiety of going, I need to show that I, I'm sort of offering due reverence to Shakespeare in order to get my next production. I feel like I would want to direct Shakespeare in future potentially, although there are other things that I would much more want to direct only on on my own terms and I think one of the joys of doing it one of the reasons that people do do it a lot is theoretically because it's out of copyright you can mess with it and there's a license in some ways to do that because when we started talking about Othello Macbeth and I was like by the way I'm going to cut most of the good speeches and whatever I was like I should say that it's like two hours long which I think for most people is a huge incentive to see it well yes I mean it might it's going to creep up slightly but um yeah it's definitely not going to be more than it definitely won't be more than three, and that's two for the price of one. Right. But I think I was like, there's, you know, there's like 17 other Othellos going on this year. There's a million other Macbeths. The plays will be fine, and I feel okay about even if everyone in the world turns up and goes, I think you've got it wrong. I feel all right about getting it wrong. I feel, I think that's more useful than cranking out a very standard Macbeth that does everything right and has everybody yeah, in period exactly. dress. Yeah, exactly, and pointing everyone to the sort of footnoted Arden edition in which I prove that there's definitely a justification that someone's written in their dissertation 15 years ago that means that that person can say that line in that way. I think if we trust that he's that great and he belongs to us and we should be able to show his genius anywhere, then let's do what we want with it. One final question. Um, best female role in Shakespeare? Oh, man. I mean, they're really pants. No, they're not. I think there's a lot of I might I struggle with the what I think of as the floaty women so Desdemona and Ophelia because I just think I've seen lots of really great actresses struggle in wafty dresses um, yes you know looking sort of all wan and you just and that, I find that I just sort of want to kind of go oh, just put yourself together well yeah I think so um, comedies I find I find better for that yes because they tend to be more front footed don't they I mean I've got big love for Amelia in Othello. And it's fun when you carve out the space for her. And her journey is bizarre because in some ways she's incredibly switched on and cynical. And then she's also like, Iago, man who's not very nice to me, do you want this handkerchief that I found on the floor? I hope you don't do anything bad with it. So there are there are knots to be ironed out in her, but I find her chat really She's engaging. practical, isn't she? I think that's one of the things is that she feels like, she doesn't feel like a princess in a fairy castle. She feels like a, a human woman. Yes, exactly. And a human woman who's already dealing with some incredibly complicated crap at the beginning of the play and wading her way through that. And I think she has such an interesting, she has so many interesting reserves of resentment and so much cause for resentment, not just towards, obviously, Iago, but Desdemona and various other people as well, that I find her I find her spiky. That's good. Spiky is good. <laughs> um, that was Duke Christian. Othello Macbeth is on at home, Manchester first, and then the lyric comes with. for a section we like to call You Ask Us. And this week you asked us about the Lib Dems, which is coincidental because you've also written your column on the Lib Dems. Should the Lib Dems get a new leader? Vince Cable got a lot of flack for missing a vote. Was it the customs union vote? Because he was talking about the launch of a new centrist party whilst not really realising that he was still leading an old centrist party. I guess the joke goes. But you don't think that Vince is the entirely the problem? I don't think Vince is the I mean, so let's take, for example, that, that vote, which was effectively a problem than the Lib Dem whips 
thought than they had they they had definitely lost yeah and so they basically went because labor changed its mind it was basically the classic problem that labor was going to abstain because they thought they couldn't win then labor basically thought oh actually there are enough tory rebels maybe we can win in the end because of the labor leavers even if you'd had Mm -hmm. uh, every lib dem turn up it wouldn't have mattered but it only became important because of other decisions I essentially think, one, if you're Vince Cable or indeed you're any Liberal Democrat leader, it's very important for you to be present at every conversation about a new centrist party because you've you've got to handle it in a way that means that you are not immediately sort of swallowed and subordinated to it. Right. Tim Farron was in the Politico morning email this week uh, being interviewed in his constituency and he said, you know, we will have to talk to whatever the party is if there is a new party emerges, right? You Either that centrist party will swallow the Lib Dems or it will replace them in people's minds as the party that occupies that bit of space. So it's, it's, it is something they have to deal with. Yeah. So that criticism, I kind of think, doesn't really apply. But the essential problems of the, the, the Lib Dems have, I just don't really think are the fault of or are fixed by a change of leader, right? He is coming up, you know, he has got a stated mission every month to come up with a new eye-catching policy idea uh, to kind of make the, the party seem more dynamic and also to hopefully get it talked about. So far, those ideas have failed to catch fire. Some of those ideas are in my my mind bad. Go on, yeah. give me an example. Well, scrapping Ofsted and removing the whole sort of architecture of school accountability, I think, is a bad That idea. seems a bad idea, given that one of the established problems with free schools is that they don't have the accountability that the rest of the system has anyway and go straight to the Secretary of State, or at least they did when they were first yeah. set up. And now, of course, you've got this hilarious thing with the DfE trying to create various, like, I can't believe it's not an LEA. We'll have a place authority because the mid-tier is actually quite an important way of making sure that schools uh, work. But I think it, it's a bad idea. However, it's an idea, A, popular with some teachers, and B, the advantage if you're the third party with coming up with eye-catching ideas, good or bad, is hopefully people talk about you and remember you exist. Uh, drugs, you know. Drugs, yeah, drugs is another place. A classic Lib Dem issue. Another thing that they've, sort of, uh, they've talked about, they are uh, trying to get a hearing on the fact that Obviously, our prisons are in a state. Under Richard Bergen, Labour's critique is essentially that there isn't enough money going into it, which, I mean, it is true that prisons have been at the forefront of fighting, but we could also fix that by just sending fewer people to prison, right? Like, we, we do send too many people. So they're trying to, to, to do that. But their essential problems, right, are why do we never write about them? Well, because they have 12 MPs. Yeah, we write um, about them less than... Because the DUP have a similar number and actually affect the government votes, right? Yeah, they're, they're, they have 12 MPs. They have no uh, They have no real influence. We don't write a massive amount about the SNP at Westminster, right? Um, which, you know, is is because they act in quite predictable ways. And also because, yeah, their state it is... You know, their main arena and focus is, is, of course, Parliament in Scotland. And when we write about Scott... But also there's a crucial um, sort of revealing problem having 12 MPs uh, does create for you. Mostly when we write about SNP MPs, we write about specific campaigns mounted by uh, backbench MPs, whether it was in the last Waspy or period poverty John, or yeah, child or, or burial fees. Yeah, or, or the, the Turing bill in the, in the last parliament. Obviously, if you have uh, 45, it's not 45 anymore, if you have 40 30 odd MPs in your in your parliament, then you are. You've got more chances to. You have break got through. more. You yeah. have got more chances to do that, and that problem does not go away if Vince Cable becomes a backbencher. 
The other problem is, of, of course, coalition and the electoral consequences of it. Only half of the country believes that, as well, half of the country believes that the coalition was bad and has not yet forgiven them for it. The other half is split between people who think the think the coalition was bad and have forgiven them for it, believe that the coalition was good all along. Although in some cases that is the classic sort of people who've changed their mind who are pretending they haven't changed their mind, and then uh, another group who are who are fairly well who think the coalition was bad, but think that the Lib Dems did the best job they could, given the circumstances, right? Now, of course, the problem the Lib Dems have is that they are only fishing for votes in that pool of the half of the country, which, for one reason or another, feels the coalition was not an unforgivable sin. Now, as time goes on, the number of people who feel that the coalition was not an unforgivable sin goes up. But it is hard to... I don't buy that they can uh, sort of expedite that by having you know a fresh leader who wasn't in coalition i also think and actually i'm yeah obviously you know as as someone who was who's perhaps more because i feel that probably our views on the lib dems have exactly switched and then you were probably more well disposed to them before they went into coalition yeah whereas i um was more well disposed to them afterwards well i was more in my 20s i was much more liberal than i am now in the sense of much more quasi-libertarian in the sense that I, my views were much more if people should be allowed to get on with what they want without the state interfering and I've got to become more statist as I've got older. Well, I think that my the thing I essentially found weird about the Lib Dems before coalition, right, is if you are the third party and first past the post in particular, your your best hope is that you get into power and then you can soften off the edges of the governing party that you don't like and you can get a couple of your issues through as well. And on that metric, they were incredibly successful in coalition in a parliament in which, I'm sorry, again, maths is a thing. The numbers were not there for any other alternative government. But they were, in my view, and then in 2015, they had a manifesto which actually was very sober and it was very accurate about what a third party can actually achieve in parliament. Mm. Right? But they were punished, sort of, in my view, fairly, albeit at the wrong time, for running an election in 2010 and 2005 based on the idea that they were going to be able to... Majority, yeah. Effectively based on a false premise. Now, the problem I think they have is that, in an odd way, the good thing about the coalition is that it means that they can't go back to that kind of our big policy is we need to build more houses, but all of our MPs have campaigned against building houses, you know, campaigned against the local Labour Council building more homes, right? Then the coalition should mean that they, does essentially mean voters don't trust them to do that kind of thing anymore. The problem is I think a critical mass of their activists and some of their MPs still would like to go back to that. Um, And essentially what they need to get to is a situation... So this is why I think this idea of, oh, well, you just get rid of of Vince Cable, then you have someone like Leila Moran who's not tainted by coalition, doesn't work, because at some point they're going to be tainted by coalition again. It also doesn't, as well, isn't it just a replay of, let's have Ed Miliband, not David Miliband, because he didn't vote for the Iraq war because he wasn't in Parliament at the time. And it's like, just because someone hasn't done a thing that you all hate doesn't isn't a qualification in and of itself. Yeah, but I also think the thing is, right, is with the Ed Miliband... like. Labour disavowing the Iraq war did undoubtedly help it win back some votes. Mm. Uh, And those votes have remained with it after a change of leader. And ultimately, I can't work out how Labour will... It's not built in that Labour has to lose those votes at some point in the future. Yeah. Whereas trying to win back the votes of people who are voting... Yes, we're not going to invade Iraq again, I hope. Whereas like trying to win back the votes of people who... um, are annoyed with you behaving like a coalition, a junior coalition partner in a coalition when you are a party whose best aim under our electoral system is to 
become a junior coalition partner again is mad. But they could assume you'd think that next time the Lib Dems would insist on a supply and confidence arrangement like the DUP have. Do you think the DUP will get punished for being part of a, a supply and confidence arrangement and propping up a Conservative government? I don't think they will. No, but that's because they're the major party in, in I, Northern I, I Ireland. I guess because of the sectarian concerns and also because their economic policy is so aligned with Conservatives and because Conservatives don't compete in seats against them. All of that matters. But Yeah, it's just a very different electoral dynamic. But I also just think, in general, the, the so it is always hard for the junior coalition partner, but the Lib Dems made it harder for themselves because they never really explained... What they, what, were for. what they were for, what they were doing, and they placed too high a premium on making it on coalition be seen on winning the argument for because they thought what they need to do is go coalitions can work. That shows if we change the electoral system, have more coalitions, that would be a, a good thing. Rather than going, our participation in this coalition has worked. Whereas, of course, the DUP's bottom line is always, what is the thing that we can say we have delivered as a result of our political participation in this? Uh, I mean, Look at all this sweet, sweet money that we got for Northern Ireland. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think coalition is always preferable to confidence and supply. Uh, you can do, you can achieve more with ministerial office, right? Even if it's just small things like, you know, if you're the home home office minister, you can change the guidance uh, given to the border force. You can change. There are there are so many non-legislative things you can do as a junior partner, uh, but that means that they should be focusing on winning over voters who except they are going to be in a coalition rather than, and maybe that only means that they can get only get, ever get 30 seats, but seeing as it looks likely that we will have, you know... That's still a great number of seats to have in the next parliament if you think how the opinion polls suggest how hung that's going to be. Yeah, and, and imagine for a moment that the Lib Dems had, in 2010, had 30 seats. Well, they would still have held the balance of power. And those, and let's say those 30 seats are people who are, are more willing to accept the compromises of coalition. They would have been in a more powerful position. One of their big problems was by 2012, it was essentially clear that the Lib Dems could not politically uh, plausibly threaten to pull the plug on the Conservatives because they were going to lose seats. Just in every possible way, uh, what they yeah their, their problem is coalition. Their other problem is a bunch of them want to want to kind of etch a sketch the coalition away. Neither of those will be fixed by changing the leader. What they instead need to do is accept that coalition means there are a different political party than they were in 2010. Demand better. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Stephen's free morning email is returning next week along with Parliament. So head over to the New Statesman and subscribe or Google Stephen Bush Morning Call. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.